Welcome to Mom and Up. With your co-hosts, developmental psychologist Dr. Marty Erickson and Aaron Erickson, maternal child health specialist. Content copyrighted by Marty and Aaron Erickson. All rights reserved. Enough. I'm Marty Erickson here with my daughter Erin, and we are welcoming one of my dear friends and colleagues from the University of Minnesota, uh, going back quite a few years. So I'm just really, really pleased to have. Oliver Williams joining us. Dr. Oliver Williams worked at the University of Minnesota for 27 years as a professor of social work. He's worked in the field of fatherhood, domestic violence, and youth for 35 years. And he's the father of an adult son, Sam. And I tell you, I have this image in my mind of Oliver and Sam when Sam was just a little baby. We used a photo of Oliver and Sam on the cover of materials for an initiative called Father to Father that was started by Vice President Al Gore back in the 90s when I was working closely with him and Oliver got involved in that work as well. And um, I will just always hold Oliver and Sam in my heart because that picture was, uh, I had it on my computer and it was in just about every speech I gave, I think for a very long time and uh, was on all of the materials for Father to Father. So um, I've been hearing stories stories as we've been getting ready to record today about Sam, who now is 26 years old and a college grad and um, all, all sorts of wonderful things. So anyway, welcome, Oliver Williams. Thanks, I love Marty. having you here. Great to see you again. Well, I am very happy that we're doing a show on fatherhood because, uh, well, motherhood is uh, supported by fatherhood and vice versa, and it's a wonderful topic. And so I'm wondering to start out, if you could just share some of your personal insights about what you got from your father and father surrogates. Well, my father passed away when I was 16, and uh, the thing that was sort of interesting to me is that my dad was born in 1898. Oh, my goodness. So he was 52 when I was born. That being said, uh, I had these older brothers and sisters from my dad's first marriage, and my oldest brother became my father's surrogate. Now, with my dad, I spent a lot of time with him. I mean, I, I... Missed his presence, but we had a very rich relationship um, uh, during the time that he was alive. And I mean, from literally uh, childhood uh, to adolescence. And then, you know, he passed away, but, but, but we were very close. And um, my oldest brother also was sort of an apple of my dad's eye. I was and he was. And, and my other brother and sister, too, he loved them, too. But my oldest brother sort of had this um, uh, uh, way of sort of interacting with my dad. But And as my dad passed away, he started to transfer his caring to me. And I think one of the things that I got from my dad was unconditional positive regard. You know, I knew that he was, even during, during a time when, you didn't get as much nurturing or it wasn't expected that fathers are going to be as much of a nurturer back, sure. back in, you know, in the fifties and sixties. Uh, my dad was, and, um, 
and we spent a lot of time uh, together. Uh, had these memories of him coming to uh, practices. I was in sports. I was a football player and I was a wrestler. And uh, have this one image of my dad uh, watching me play football. And he had he always dressed so well, and he had this overcoat and this hat. And he had his hand in his pocket, and I don't know whether he knew that I was looking at him while he was looking at me and see this smile on his face when he would see me play uh, football. And even when he started to get real sick, he always made it a point to try to come to the games. And then, but also in other ways that he, you know, was quite nurturing to me. Mm-hmm. And um, so as my father passed away, uh, my older brother, who had children as old as I was, uh, started to sort of enter enter my life. And what was interesting about him was that the older I got, the closer he and I got. And that we would travel together and uh, spend time with each other and call each other. But he would also sort of watch out for me uh, when I was an adolescent and a young man, you know, in my early 20s. And so, uh, and to the point where when I came to the U, uh, he would come to a lot of the events that I would have, and sometimes I would have to go and um, give a, a presentation somewhere, and he'd travel with me. We'd stay in the same room, hang out with each other, and uh, it was good, good experiences with him. And even though I had other brothers, my oldest brother was the one that I was uh, I was closer to because he spent more time trying to engage with me and watch out for me and, and stuff. That's a beautiful story. Yeah. I didn't ever know that yeah. about you. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that illustrates such an important point, too, about the role of father figures in children's lives. Right. And a lot of children are not fortunate enough to have their father in their lives for all kinds of reasons, whether their father's alive or not, and, right. uh, you know, all sorts of things that affect that. Right. But to have that father figure... Um, is such a powerfully um, influential role in a young man's development and young women's development as well. We know that fathers really affect uh, particularly daughters' attitudes uh, toward achievement and right. also their romantic relationships and um, just a couple of the ways. So that's a really beautiful story. You yeah. were blessed to have two fathers really Absolutely. in your life. Yeah, and so my, my, my brother uh, passed away in 2004. Mm, and so yeah too soon but you know he was he was close to 80 Mm. and so uh, So had a good long life had a good life yeah Yeah. and you mentioned your father dressing well I that my ears perked up at that because I think I've never seen you look anything other than just (laughs) just elegant and put together I don't know if you remember I ran into you in the airport in Washington DC one time Uh Uh, we were traveling for different reasons and and I saw you getting a manicure and I just loved it I I didn't know um, none of the men in my family ever got manicures but it just was you just always it just looks so put together, I guess. And I, I don't know. That's I a silly thing to bring up, maybe. But it ju- I don't know. I just nice thought it was a that. sweet moment. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Manicures cannot be underrated. I, right. Exactly. My, my right. children's dad, he also does occasionally do that. And it's very good to take care of your hands. Yeah. So. I, well, and 
and it your own good. son loves to go and get pedicures with with me and my husband now has started doing that with us and yeah. and you know he's always in his baggy jeans and his baseball cap he's not quite as spiffy looking <laughs> as you on an ordinary day I would say he he, he cleans uh, up well but um, but it's so funny because uh, we go into this little um, nail shop in California where mm-hmm. we have a second home and and I take the the grandsons and the granddaughters and my husband and we go in and get pedicures together it's quite yeah. fun yeah Sonia and I've been uh, actually today is our 31st wedding anniversary oh congratulations yeah. so we uh, we um, will occasionally go and get pedicures and manicures together too that's, That's nice. Wonderful. Well, my husband and I have been not to play one upsmanship right here, but I'm quite a bit older than you are, and uh, we've been we've been married for 47 and a half years. Wow. So, yeah, long time. That's great. Well, so I'm curious to, you know, you've, of course, had this uh, really beautiful story of, of, of having your own experience with your father and then a, f- a father's surrogate experience with your older brother. And what have you learned about fatherhood in those experiences as well as your own experience of being a father? Well, one of the things that I think that I I got from my dad's relationship with his father, because my grandfather was alive when when I was a little boy, mm. and my dad would sort of take me around him. And, uh, but I saw the, the respect that my dad had for his father, but also this, you know, sort of affection, you know, that he had, you know, from my granddad too. And my, my uh, dad had, uh, he was the second oldest of 11 kids. And they, they grew up in South Carolina and they came to uh, Detroit. And uh, all my brothers had though, that type of affection for my granddad as well. And they sort of honored him. And I think we felt that way about my dad. And uh, my dad had a reputation among his siblings, but also uh, among the the uh, uh, grandchildren, the children and the grandchildren and the nephews and nieces. And so that was something that I got. But I think another thing that was uh, was also uh, uh, important for me is to recalibrate. So Sam, and for me, what that means is that, uh, um, you know, sometimes when a child goes through adolescence, they can be kind of difficult. <laughs> yeah. And so in the process, you never give up on your child. You you have to be loving to them and you have to recalibrate and then just continue to accept and under and try to understand and talk and be your authentic self with your with your child. And I think one of the things I got from my dad is that he always was his authentic self with me. And um uh, and I got that from my brother, but with my brother, and I think it was a recalibration. I don't know whether I, I was always as warm with him until I got older, but he never left. He was always mm. present and recalibrated. And what, what I think about with Sam is, uh, you know, when he goes through those things where he's trying to figure things out, I just have to recalibrate and say, you know, I love him and I'm going to be there for him. And then, things tend to work out uh, uh, for us and uh, also the things that I get from him, you know, uh, uh, his wisdom, you know, I think he's nurturing, he's caring to other people as well as Sonia and I, and he's a much wiser, you know, than 
I thought he might be. And and what I mean mm. by that is, you know, you hope for it. And then you start to see it. And then you hear him um, uh, give you these insights about things. And, and so, you know, I'm a social worker, so I think he should be a social worker, but he's committed to being an artist and not a social worker. But uh, I think the, the other thing that I get from Sam is, you know, there are some interesting things that he's taught to me about with what he got from me and what he said he gets from both of his parents, but also what he, he's gotten from me. And he said, you know, Dad, uh, parents are a mirror. And uh, in a lot of the ways that they he sees himself came from what he saw in Sonia and I. Mm. And, um, and I think this, this notion about being present and available and on his side, and those things that he he's gotten from uh, from us, from what he says, uh, he says that uh, you get a sense of identity from your parents, and um, and what he's uh, talked about was the fact that you know the way that you're treated by your parents, and what you see in your parents helps you to understand who you are, and so. Those are sort of interesting comments that I, I got from him. But also, I think I got a sense of myself, too, from my dad. And there's a thing that Sam and I do that have done. My dad was always a giving person. And uh, one of the things that he would do, I'd see him do, whether it's someone who was uh, on the street or someone who was a guy that was sweeping up in the barbershop, he would go up to him and he would put some money in his hand and he would go and shake the person's hand and, you know, kind of give and them leave money. The money there. And so, uh, and then he, you know, give people, if he saw somebody was on the street that, you know, was asking for money, my dad would do that. I've done that over the years. Sam does that hmm. and has done that too, in terms of, uh, uh, asking questions about things. And I, I keep thinking of, uh, these different, situations we went to uh uh i was trying to teach him when he was a little guy the importance of giving things to people you know that that you know not everybody lives as well as he does and 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 that there are ways that we have to open our hearts to give to people and so we went to uh back then they had toys r us so we got a bunch of toys and we went to a homeless shelter and we were giving the toys, you know, to to the shelter. And so, so I'm taking things out of the bag. <laughs> and so I'm taking things uh, out of the bag. Sam saw something that he liked and he wanted to put it back in oh. <laughs> the bag for Typical but, kid, yeah. <laughs> but then he, he's, it's sort of taken with him where he makes efforts to try to, to give and to nurture and to share with people on the street and to share with other people, you know, different things that, in ways that he can. Well, and you, it sounds like you've taught him that, and you also showed him that, at, just as your father showed you. And right. uh, I hear two big themes in what you're saying, and, and one is that, that our, we're always watching yeah. our parents and learning from what they do as much or more than from what they say, especially when we say it as a lecture, which 
that's very easy to do. And those are um, his words. Yeah. Those are Sam's words. But okay. the other thing I hear is that secure base, you know, in attachment terms, you know, everything you're describing throughout Sam's life is being there even when he's, you know, doing whatever he does as an adolescent or did as an adolescent that, you know, drove you a little up the wall, I would imagine. I've, I've been there. I right. parented two kids through adolescence, right. and now I have grandchildren right. entering that stage too. But just being there counts for so much. Right. And, uh, you know, that just comes through so clearly in what you describe. And then yeah. kids see Boy, even when I'm being kind of a jerk, I'm not being respectful or I'm, you know, screwing around doing things I shouldn't do, my parents still love me and they're still here for me. And that's, that's right. a pretty powerful statement. Yeah, that's right. And how many kids don't have that, you know, how right. many kids don't have that in a father, especially. I mean, tragically, we still have so many people in our society who are growing up without their fathers right. being either being literally present physically or right. fully present emotionally. Yeah, you know, uh, the one person I met through you was Joe Jones. Oh, yeah. So Joe and I have made uh, stayed in contact over the years. He's been doing more work, work around domestic violence, and, you know, I was doing some work, and we did some things together. But um, I've got him on a video. I've done some things about working with men coming out of prison and trying to address domestic violence issues, but talking about the issue of fatherhood and showed Joe's program. And Joe incorporated domestic violence in his work. But one of the things that I thought, you know, pushing on what you said, was the fact that there's some fathers that have not been involved in kids' lives because they didn't have a father involved in their lives. Yeah. And that um, what Joe's trying to do is to teach them how to be available and accessible to their children. And um, and that they they are trying to sort of change the script about what they got. And I it was speaking to a guy this morning. We were going to work on something together. And we talked about how our lives were a little bit different. And uh, and there's something that it seems like he got from, I don't know how he got it, but you know maybe it's apparent. He talked about how his life was different and that it was more of a struggle for him when he was growing up. And that has an influence in terms of the way that he sees the world and how he responds in the world. And compared to what he thought might be my reality. And then, you know, I grew up in environments that weren't always the, the easiest, but I also had a strong family background that supported me. I knew my mother and my father were there for me. And uh, it comes out differently. And I think that's also true for Sam, you know, too, that uh, he knew he knows that his parents and his family are behind him and support him and are proud of him and, yeah. That means a lot. Uh, it means well, the world. I just love your use of the term recalibrate. Mm -hmm. And just that, you know, I feel like there's often an inclination when kids go maybe a direction that you didn't expect or something you didn't anticipate that, that the inclination is to pull them back to where they were or where you want them. And there's something really beautiful about you as a father adjusting and recalibrating to where your child is and that you're meeting your son where he is, right. wherever that might be, you know, uh, where he is now as a man who's uh, pursuing his artistic interests um, or where he was as a child. And, and that's so beautiful. And I think that's that sense of, as my mom talked about, you know, the secure base, 
but that the base is not static it's right. dynamic that's right. and so that that's really powerful and mm-hmm. i love uh that you can do that um recalibrating and still remain true to yourself as a person that authenticity which i really came through in your story mm-hmm. so that, thank you for sharing that i i love that image and mm-hmm. i'm gonna keep that in mind when my children surprise me, <laughs> for better or for yeah, worse. And they occasionally do. <laughs> they do. That's what keeps yeah. this job as a mother or parent interesting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. You said you were uh, influenced by something my mom wrote many years oh, ago yeah. about fathers' relationships with their children, right. uh, but also with uh, their mo- the That's mothers right. of their children. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I, I started... Uh, you know, sort of looking at fatherhood, but Marty asked me to come to this event uh, with Vice President Gore. And as I was uh, thinking about that, and then we had been to different meetings where we got fathers and you know, people were doing different type of work together to, to talk about issues. And um, I think you, was it Bill Doherty, wrote something together? Yes, we did. We had a big intervention project, yeah. actually, working with couples at the time they were having their first child, couples who were cohabiting, right. married or not. Right. And, well, the, we, and we wrote we wrote several papers together related to that and kind of preceding that as well. Well, the, the thing that was very helpful for me as I started working with the intersection of domestic violence and fatherhood is the the uh, the comment that came one of the the pieces that came out of the uh, paper that you and Bill wrote, and it was that. Um, the best uh, predictor of whether or not a father is going to have a good relationship with his children is influenced by the relationship that uh, the father has with the mother of the children. Yeah. And so as I have done presentations, I always quote that and, um, and said that, you know, so if you have domestic violence in a, in a household, in a, in a home, and... Um, you know, the consequence is the, the fact that it's a non-starter if a man's being physically abusive to his partner. Yeah. And so uh, I did a study in uh, Kenya. And so uh, we went to Nairobi and we interviewed a number of um, men, young men and older men um, about uh, marriage and also about uh, relationships. And so uh, domestic violence is something that is a challenge within Kenya, as it is everywhere else. But one of the things that's interesting that uh, people said was um, that, you know, your men are encouraged to be controlling and physically abusive to women. And they said that, um, you know, they grow up with it. They see their mothers doing it. I have a friend from Burkina Faso, and they have a a phrase that said that... uh, um, if you leave your husband, you'll be cursed. If you stay with him, you'll be blessed because he's the person that's going to support the children financially and educationally and, and uh, et cetera. So the thing that I thought was fascinating was that I asked him, well, well, did you like what you saw? Did you, what happens when that goes on? And they said that what they do is that they start to draw closer to the mother and they distance themselves from the father as they get older because they didn't like what they saw. Mm. But what's interesting is when they get into relationships with women, sometimes the mother will encourage them to do what their fathers did to them. Really? And so so the thing is that women don't like being abused. 
and children don't like seeing their mother's abuse, it's an opportunity to reshape it and reshape the message in terms of how people think and behave. And so, you know, we have issues in the United States. It's the same thing that you say, you know, you had to say, well, look, the ways that we've learned to think about things uh, needs to shift. If you saw that growing up in a household and you didn't like it, why would you do that to someone else? So sort of changing the message. But I think the big thing that I think is so important is that when we've worked with men around the issue of domestic violence, we have to get them to rethink how they behave and, and interact, but to recognize that their behaviors towards their, their the mother of their children is, uh, is going to affect how the children view him and interact with him. And you got to shift. And mm. so that's a very important comment. Well, and, you know, it's it resonates for me in my work on child abuse and intergenerational cycles of child abuse. And the same is true that, you know, someone who's been abused as a child, you would think that they might be so motivated not to pass that on. And yet, too often, they do pass it on, maybe not in exactly the same form that they were abused, but there, there is that propensity for people to do what was done to them in childhood. And I think yet there's so much hope in some of the research on breaking those cycles, both related to child abuse and to um, partner abuse, uh, other kinds of domestic violence. But just that being able to reflect on how you were treated and authentically realize what it did to your spirit, to your soul, to your sense of self, and then reach that resolve to do things differently, mm-hmm. which is easier said than done, of course. Right. But, um, you know, mustering all the resources you can get your hands on, um, both emotional support from other people who've walked that path and, and good information about better ways to be in relationship um, I think there's a lot of hope in that, but it takes a lot of people speaking up about it, and right. I'm, I'm glad you're doing that in the area of domestic violence. Yeah. It's, a, it's making a some efforts to challenge. Try yeah. yeah. So we're we're nearing the end of our time, and I, I you know I just love this opportunity to kind of pick your brain and tap into your wisdom, both from your personal life and and also the extraordinary you work work you've done literally around the world. Um, related to domestic abuse and how how to help people move toward more respectful, um, caring ways of relating to others. What have you learned about how we can teach men um, to be good models for their children? And I think that obviously encompasses um, not abusing the mother of those children. But in general, um, you know, what lessons have you taken away from your many years of work that would help you? Well, Help you answer that question. You know, one of the things is issue about problem solving and also comfort in the role. I mean, that's one of the things I like about Joe's work mm-hmm. is the fact that he literally goes on the street, finds people who have children, have and may have issues with kids, uh, with their with their partner, and tries to help them figure out how to negotiate those challenges. And he and he says, "Is it?" He one of the comments that he makes is, it's not that men don't want to be uh, good fathers. Sometimes they don't know how to be good fathers. Yeah, and so, and I think it's the same same thing in, in terms of the work that I I've been doing, is that clearly sometimes people have this perspective about control, and um, 
and uh, being abusive and being in charge and 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 also about spanking children, you know, you know, mm-hmm. and they think that's the way that you do it rather than considering other ways to do it. So showing different ways that people might behave and learn how to think about it. I heard one person tell me that they were afraid not to spank their child because they were afraid the child would be out of control and, and be problematic. And uh, and so I'm saying, and, and what I would say and what I think one can teach is how to think about those issues in those contexts and those circumstances differently, but then showing how you might behave differently, giving those challenges and practice that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, can you give an example? And yeah. I, I'm glad you brought up the issue of, of spanking because I think it still is, you know, it's a very controversial thing in right. our society and, right. and within some cultures even more so. But right. I think it's, you know, it's a common thing right. still. Right. Um, and yet the research really shows that it's not the most effective way to provide, to set limits and enforce limits and right. help children learn to do the right thing when they're not being watched even you know you uh, yeah. kids learn to avoid getting caught but That's not right. necessarily to do the right thing but what what would be some of the uh, ways that you would counsel a father or a mother to find an alternative that would still do what they're hoping to do with spanking well you know among the things that we again with this this one curriculum we develop around prison reentry and domestic violence yeah seeing fathers come back and then when they come into the home they want to control everything, control their children, control everything. So among the things that we talked about, what are the 10 uh, behaviors that you might identify in terms of being a good father? But what are 10 things that you can learn how to do to be a nonviolent, non-abusive father? Mm. And so, uh, so you know, uh, one thing is to be a nurturer and talking about what that means and what that means in the context for the men that you're dealing with. For in their head, being a nurturer may be perceived as being weak, yeah. and you don't or want effeminate. to, or and you don't want to treat teach your child, your male child, how to behave that way, or think that way. But what would it mean for them, you know, if it was a situation that we we'd come up with a, a situation where you would see them in that circumstance, and then then get them to talk about what does nurturing look like in that circumstance. What does being on the child's side look like? Mm, I love that phrase. Yeah, and mm. uh, um, and I think you know, giving and giving a situation, and then talking about how to do it, but again, not to go over the top, not to be violent abuse. So, so there's certain situations somebody would see, and then they think that they'd have to go a lot further than that. You know, in terms of being aggressive and and mm-hmm. uh, hostile and and uh, abusive, but how would you behave that way to be on a child's side without doing that? The other thing is, you know, in terms of uh, setting limits, is I love that that you said that because, you know, when you talk about uh, 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 setting rules and uh, uh, limits for children. Rather than spanking them, thinking that that's going to get you what you want, and and I think sometimes people get tired, and then yeah. use violence as a way to be able it's, to. It's the easy way out. It's the easy way yeah. out. Yeah. Well, and it's so hard. I mean, I'm just thinking about how does a child internalize a spanking? Right. They can internalize a limit. Right. They can say, "Oh, 
mom says or dad says danger when I go near the street. I I can internalize that message and say that to myself. But when I do this, someone spanks me. You can't really internalize that. And and I think that's the goal of parenting is that your children internalize the message of whether it's, you know, the message of love or the message of that's not safe or the message of that's not nice or whatever it is, that you internalize it and do it when your mom and dad aren't there. And, you know, uh, uh, complete honesty, I was spanked by my mom, you know, and uh, but it wasn't the only tool she had. Yeah. And so, you know, so the phrase, you know, with a lot of people now, was child welfare worker, the only tool that you have is a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. Sure. So when I was, uh, I always tell this story about when the first and last time I ever stole anything, I was like three or four. And I went to the grocery store with my mother and she asked me if I wanted Cracker Jacks or Animal Crackers. And so I said, I want them both. She says, no, you can only have one. So she got the animal crackers and I got the cracker chips <laughs> and put them in my bib overalls. So you were a budding thief at age four. <laughs> exactly. And then we walked home and said, Mama, I got a surprise for you. She says, what's it? Bam, showed her the, the cracker chip. We walked back to the store. She had me apologize to the manager, to the guard, and she told me the guard would put me in jail if I did that. And then <laughs> no. she had me talk to the, um, uh, the clerk. Mm-hmm. and apologized to the clerk. And then when we got back home, I thought it was a done deal. She came in, she she spanked me, and she told me not to do it. But the other thing is that she, it not, I'm not suggesting that because I've never spanked Sam. Mm-hmm. But uh, but what my, my mother would do is she would hug me. She would tell me the reason why she, I got a spanking. She told me not to do it again, and she didn't want to see me, you know, harmed. And and, and I still remember the situation in Technicolor, but uh, the thing that I think is that she had a range of uh, choices, particularly in a time that we didn't talk about that. Yeah. The expectation sure, was that, that, you know, you'd spank your child. That's what parents did, yeah. That's I was right. spanked, too. Yeah. yeah. So. But I, what I hear and what your mom did, too, was, you know, she could have done the same thing and imposed some other consequence, the right. loss of a privilege or right. something. That's right. And it would have had the same effect because right. she was really explaining to right. you what was wrong about that that's and, right. and you know, letting you know she took this very seriously. That's, that's exactly and, right. And these days, with so much violence and right. with guns, you know, proliferating right. everywhere, right. Um, I, I think even more reason to not use violence of any kind in the household because if you use one kind, you're giving permission for all kinds of violence. But it's, you know, I understand that that's a a hard case to make sometimes when that's all people have known. Right. That's And then what she grew up with. But the thing was interesting is the fact that it wasn't the, some, I, I, I think when it's seen people who've been, victims of abuse and people who've been the uh, perpetrators of the abuse. It's been interesting that sometimes when they do it, they do it only out of anger. Yeah. And uh, so I would have preferred my mother use other choices, but, uh, but I also got the other things that she was able to give. Yeah. And my dad never smacked me. Never. Wow. It was just not in his nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he though. was such a strong presence as you describe him. And that's, right. you know, to me, we we too often equate 
force with strength. Right. And and I think of you as a beautiful example. Mm. One of the reasons mm. I was so pleased to have you come for a Father's mm. Day week um, mm. show with us is that to mm. me, you, you uh, just kind of embody the presence of quiet strength, mm. gentle strength, and everything I've ever heard you say about, you know, your relationship with Sam and, and knowing, you know, you've been married for 31 years now, that's an accomplishment in, in today's world. And mm. um, But I think that quiet strength is an image that we just need to, you know, have more people see and understand, yeah. because sometimes what looks like strength on the surface is really being tough, not strong. Right. And, you know, some of the most vulnerable people might look tough, but real quiet, gentle inner strength is really something special. Yeah. And it gives you a resilience in the face of things life can throw you. Yeah. And, well, and uh, to truly show your vulnerability requires some strength, which is, you know, I think yeah. for fathers to be vulnerable around their children is uh, really valuable. Yeah. Well, Oliver, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks it's just me. wonderful to um, be able to reconnect with you here in person and thank to you. have our listeners um, learn about your life and what you've learned from your father, from your older brother, from your son, uh, and from all of your work on various aspects of fatherhood, domestic violence, um, youth development, and all of those areas in which you've contributed so much in your long career. So thanks for being with us, and thanks to all of you for tuning in to Mom Enough. I'm Marty, here with my daughter Erin, and we hope you'll tune in again next week. If you have concerns about your child's growth and development, please talk to your child's health care provider or call 1-866-693-GROW. That's 1-866-693-4769 to talk to a professional and find out ways in which you can get connected to various resources in Minnesota. Do you think I'll have a show called Kid Enough someday?